0: The American Thoracic Society, we help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society Blue Journal podcast. I would like to introduce Dr. Benjamin Singer, Senior Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellow at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Dr. Singer. Thanks, Yasha.
1: Hello. I'd like to welcome you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Mathe, who is Professor of Medicine and Anesthesia at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Mathe has written an essay appearing in the June 1, 2014 issue of the Blue Journal entitled, Resolution of Pulmonary Edema, 30 Years of Progress. Welcome, Dr. Mathe. Thank you. To start, comment on the fundamental mechanisms that drive resolution of alveolar edema.
0: Well, the uh, most important uh, mechanism that is responsible is active ion transport. So the alveolar epithelium is normally quite tight, and what removes or drives the edema fluid clearance is a little bit like what occurs in the renal tubular epithelium of the kidney. Sodium is absorbed on the apical surface of the epithelium and then transferred by the basal lateral sodium ATPase pump to the interstitium. And that transport of sodium, followed by chloride for electrical neutrality, acts as a mini osmotic gradient which then absorbs water from the alveolar edema. So it's a uh, active ion transport system what we call vectorial ion transport that drives the reabsorption of the edema fluid.
1: In a broader context, what have these lessons about pulmonary edema clearance taught us about resolution of lung injury more in a general sense?
0: Well, the uh, first thing perhaps the comment prior to the implications for resolution of edema and lung injury is just to review briefly what about the resolution of pulmonary edema in the setting of hydrostatic edema standard cardiogenic or volume overload edema when the edema is primarily caused by left atrial hypertension or elevated vascular pressures in the lung. So in that case, the edema fluid floods into the air spaces because of the elevated vascular pressure. Now, I mention that first because in that circumstance, for the most part, there's no injury to the lung endothelium or the lung epithelium. So once the cause of the hydrostatic cardiogenic edema is treated and the pressures are lowered in the lung, as occurs with diuretics or vasodilators or just improved cardiac performance, then this active ion transport system can rapidly reabsorb edema fluid from the airspaces. And that's why clinically we see patients with even severe cardiogenic edema resolve most of their edema fluid if their vascular pressures in the lung have returned to normal rather rapidly. Within 12 to 24 hours, most of the alveolar edema fluid can be reabsorbed. We in fact have studied this in isolated perfused human lungs that could not be used for transplant and the um, rate of alveolar edema fluid clearance in the uninjured lung is about 20% per hour. Now, your question, though, focused on lung injuries. So in that setting, we know from several studies that we did starting in 1990 that patients with acute lung injury, ARDS, have a much slower rate of alveolar edema fluid clearance, and this is, in fact, so slow that in the early phase of severe ARDS, there's no net fluid clearance at all. And those patients who have the most impaired or the slowest alveolar fluid clearance, let's say less than 3% per hour, those are the patients who have more severe lung injury and that's associated with a higher mortality. Now, the reasons for why there's slow alveolar fluid clearance are multiple, so maybe we could go into that in more detail, but in a general sense, the way to understand this is that the epithelium is injured, so the process of reabsorption cannot occur normally and at the same time, the lung endothelium may be sufficiently injured, so there's excess fluid filtering out of the vascular compartment that's still flooding the interstitium and the air spaces.
1: I think that's a great conceptual overview. Talking a little bit more about translating some of these ideas into a a clinical therapy, I just want to talk briefly about beta-2 agonists. As you know, despite uh, an encouraging preclinical database about the beneficial effects of beta-2 agonists on lung edema clearance, they failed to improve outcomes in acute respiratory distress syndrome. Why do you think these trials were disappointing?
0: Yes, well, it's a terrific question and an important one. I think that the trials, which uh, you referred to in the plural, because we had done one with aerosolized beta-2 agonists in the NHLBI ARDS network, the ALTA trial, but also The British had done one in the U.K. trial with intravenous salbutamol. So since both trials did not have any beneficial effect, we can be confident that no matter how the beta agonist is delivered, intravenously or aerosolized, it did not work. If we only had the aerosolized trial, there would be the lingering question of whether the aerosolized beta agonist actually reached the alveolar compartment although we did have some preliminary data in various studies, both experimental and in patients, that suggested aerosolized beta agonists would achieve a good concentration, satisfactory in the alveolar compartment. So then the question is, why didn't they work, as you said? Well, I think uh, the most likely explanation is that the alveolar epithelium in ARDS was too injured. Now, what does that mean? Well, the injury could be conceived of in two or three different ways. First, that the alveolar epithelium parts of it were denuded, necrotic, or apoptotic. So there really wasn't an adequate epithelial barrier. So this can happen in a necrotizing pneumonia, severe sepsis aspiration. So if you give a beta agonist and the alveolar epithelium isn't intact, there's not gonna be net effect, uh, benefit, no net fluid clearance. Secondly, there are a variety of inflammatory pathways that are turned on in ARDS, and we and others have evidence that possibly interleukinate and other pro-inflammatory factors may neutralize the effects of beta agonists, even if the alveolar epithelium were normal. And so the question is, would the beta-2 agonists ever work? Well, that's interesting. Under conditions of what might be considered primarily hydrostatic stress, beta agonists can increase pulmonary edema clearance and even prevent edema. So uh, in a study in the New England Journal in 2002, patients susceptible to high-altitude pulmonary edema who were treated before ascent to the high altitude with either salmeterol, you know, lipophilic beta-2 agonist, or placebo, they had a markedly reduced incidence of developing high-altitude pulmonary edema based on the chest X-ray and also their oxygen saturation uh, in a study done in Switzerland. Also, another study from Europe showed post-operative patients with primarily hydrostatic edema, inhaled beta agonists, increased the resolution of pulmonary edema. But unfortunately, in patients with ARDS, it does not work. It's conceivable there could be a subgroup that might respond, but those patients, you know, might have a more intact alveolar epithelium and do better anyway. And the only final other point to add in here is realize that both of these beta agonist trials were done in the era following evidence from our ARDS network in the fluid conservative trial that patients treated with a fluid conservative approach after resolution of shock with ARDS had a more rapid Recovery in terms of being extubated sooner than those who were not in a fluid conservative approach. So it's also possible that adding the beta agonist on top of a uh, fluid conservative strategy, you know, really could not add anything further to reducing the quantity of pulmonary edema.
1: In these trials, both the nebulized as well as uh, intravenous albuterol administration trial, do you think there were adverse effects? carried by albuterol that may have counteracted any beneficial effect on the outcomes?
0: Well, in the aerosolized albuterol trial, we did not detect any adverse effects. In fact, like atrial fibrillation was numerically more common in the control group, not statistically. But in the, uh, the British trial, 28-day mortality was higher in the intravenous beta-agonist-treated patients, although I think hospital mortality and 90-day mortality was not different, but there was definitely a trend toward possible adverse effects. Unfortunately, their study wasn't funded by the National Health Service in Britain sufficiently to obtain enough data during the study to see if, for example, there were adverse effects on um, cardiac function, arrhythmias, liver function, metabolic acidosis. So, The authors made an effort to try and study this retrospectively, but the database was quite limited. And there is, of course, some newer thinking that catecholamines could have a variety of adverse effects, whether it's in a septic patient or otherwise. So I think we should have an open mind about the possibility, yes, that beta-agonists, particularly by the intravenous route, could have adverse consequences.
1: Would you like to to see another trial of beta-agonists in ARDS?
0: Well, not at this time, no. I think the issue is pretty well settled until and if there was evidence that there could be a subgroup that would respond. I mean, we have a pretty excellent data from the aerosolized trial from ARDS Network and the intravenous trial from the U.K. I mean, it's conceivable, for example, to think of maybe combining a beta agonist with some other factor, some other treatment uh, like uh, inhaled steroids or something like that. But right now, my enthusiasm would be low, not high.
1: Are there other agents that might be interesting for uh, enhancing clearance of lung edema in ARDS?
0: Yes, one of them is a molecule familiar to many pulmonary physicians called keratinocyte growth factor. This is fibroblast growth factor seven. It's an endogenous growth factor produced in the lung and elsewhere, which is important in development and also helps to uh, restore injured epithelium. This is a molecule that was originally uh, developed by Amgen and was approved for treatment of mucositis and radiation and chemotherapy injury in the neck of patients undergoing cancer therapy, and they found an improvement in healing. Then it was bought by a European company, Biovitrum, and several experimental studies suggested that KGF could work to enhance edema fluid clearance, we published data on this, as well as other investigators, perhaps by two or three mechanisms. One would be increasing the rate of alveolar epithelial healing, so therefore restoring a injured epithelium. And there is some evidence that it can upregulate the uh, ion transporters, particularly sodium transporters. And so a Phase two trial was just completed a few months ago that I am part of with Professor McCauley at Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland, It's a small phase two trial. We look forward to getting the data together and seeing what the safety and uh, efficacy signals are. It was small, only 60 patients. But I think KGF is an interesting possibility as one molecule that might be, you know, beneficial.
1: Uh, Talk a bit about uh, cell-based therapies that might play a role in resolution of lung inflammation and, and lung edema.
0: Well, We are uh, very interested in this possibility. Uh, We've been working since 2005 in uh, experimental preclinical studies, initially in mice, then rats, uh, then a perfused human lung preparation, and ultimately in sheep studies, to test the possible therapeutic benefit of bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem or stromal cells, more appropriately stromal cells. These aren't stem cells in the usual sense of the word. And there's quite a bit of data from our group and some from other investigators that these mesenchymal stem or stromal cells, MSCs, can enhance edema fluid clearance. We published uh, two papers, one in PNAS in 2009 and one in the Blue Journal in 2013, showing in a perfused lung preparation with injury from endotoxin or live bacteria that MSCs increased alveolar edema fluid clearance in the injured lung quite impressively, And uh, some of the benefit was related, interestingly, to release of KGF by these cells. The cells make several paracrine factors that could be important. And my colleague at Columbia University, Dr. Bhattacharya, has interesting data that suggests that cells can transfer their mitochondria to injured alveolar epithelium in mice and, in so doing, restore more normal bioenergetics in the alveolar epithelium, potentially making the cell capable of secreting surfactant more effectively and generating net alveolar fluid clearance. So cell-based therapy is quite interesting. We are funded now to study the MSCs. We just completed a phase one trial this last winter, dose escalation trial of one, five, and 10 million cells per kilogram. These are allogeneic MSCs from a NIH repository at the University of Minnesota, clinical grade, uh, carefully reviewed by the FDA and all the regulatory agencies, and we found no safety issues in uh, the trial. So we're now just starting a phase two trial, which is blinded and randomized two to one of MSCs for ARDS. So one of the mechanisms of potential benefit would be to accelerate the resolution of alveolar edema.
1: Putting these ideas together, what do you think is more likely to be a viable therapy for ARDS, adoptive transfer of a, of a banked cell population or administration of a factor that's released by that population?
0: Well, that's a terrific uh, question, and we have equipoise on that uh, possibility, meaning that we're equally interested in the um, cell-based therapy where perhaps cell itself would be the most effective treatment because of multiple factors the cell releases that may be important, including antimicrobial factors, anti-inflammatory factors, and even uh, mechanisms by which the cells seem to enhance repair, as well as this acute effect on improving edema fluid clearance. On the other hand, cell-based therapy does require, as you indicated, that you have a bone marrow transplant lab or some kind of cell-based lab who can thaw the cells, store them, and deliver them. So it would seem simpler, of course, if we could identify the critical factor factors from the secreted by the cells and treat with those factors, uh, such as KGF. But then this gets complicated because perhaps one of the reasons why MSCs appear to be beneficial is because They do have multiple pathways of benefit. And so it may be challenging to identify the concentrations and the uh, different molecules that are important. So there are other ones that are good candidates for beneficial effects. Angiopoietin-1 is released by these cells. We've studied that. Dr. Prokop has studied TSG-6. And there's uh, interleukin-1 receptor antagonists. So it gets a little complicated. If you're trying to prove efficacy, you have to then retreat to a single therapy, right, because normally the FDA doesn't give you approval to test two or three in combination. It's a little different than combination chemotherapy for cancers like lymphoma. So uh, another approach would be to perhaps use the conditioned media of the cells, but again, it's not clear yet how the regulatory agencies would Respond to that, there'd have to be excellent preclinical data, there'd have to be a very clear process of manufacturing of the condition media, a lot of stability, and it would still raise the question of, well, gee, couldn't you uh, isolate one, two, three, or four factors that were most important? So um, the question is really, you know, uh, highlights very well the challenge in the field. But I do have equipoise on the potential value of both cell-based therapy or, if you will, a cell-free therapeutic that's derived directly or indirectly from the mesenchymal stem stromal cells. Mm.
1: Besides the stromal cells, are there other cell types or or pathways of interest that uh, might be considered for therapeutic targeting?
0: Well, at this time, probably not. There has been quite a bit of experimental work with endothelial progenitor cells, but their characterization has been insufficient. There's been some work with unfractionated bone marrow, which would include hematopoietic elements like monocytes as well as mesenchymal stem cells, but I think that's a little hard to be sure. Now, there are other sources of mesenchymal stem cells that are potential to consider, for example, placenta or amniotic fluid. We are working with a program with those cells. They're very similar, it appears, to bone marrow derived in their uh, efficacy in preclinical models. There's also mesenchymal stem cells that can be isolated from adipocytes. But right now, I think MSCs are the most advanced in terms of potential cell-based therapy. But that doesn't mean there couldn't be um, evolution of other cell-based therapies uh, in the near future.
1: Do you see a role for uh, extra-pulmonary organs like skeletal muscle or even the liver to play in, in resolution of lung injury?
0: Do you mean in terms of uh, transplant, or do you mean... uh, uh,
1: In in terms of uh, factors that are released from these uh, other organs or even cell types that become educated in a certain way that then uh, are able to uh, promote repair in the
0: lung. Well, it's a very intriguing possibility. Uh, We know that patients who have liver disease and ARDS do particularly worse. In fact, in the ARDSnet, we've excluded patients for years with moderate to severe liver disease because we thought that the chance to enhance survival in these patients was lower because the liver disease was such a dominant part of their clinical problem. And um, even if the ARDS improved, the liver disease would still have an overwhelming effect on mortality. So it raises the question in a uh, Host without liver disease, are there factors that the liver releases that could be beneficial? And there is some basic science work on this being done that suggests the liver could play an important function, obviously as a kind of filter against bacteremia and other ways in which a healthy liver and healthy spleen through macrophage function and other cells might, you know, protect the lung and enhance repair. The skeletal muscle question, I'm less um, educated about.
1: So the the pedal network, the newly formed pedal network, has been focusing on prevention and early treatment of acute lung injury. How do you see the early pathogenic events of ARDS in relation to the events that occur for resolution? Are they separate or biologically intertwined?
0: Well, the pedal network, in fact, timely you ask, because we had our first meeting by conference call yesterday of the 12. 12- Uh, university centers in the new PEDAL network, ARDS network 3, or PEDAL, as you said, and uh, we're supposed to spend the next year coming up with um, clinical trials to enroll patients in, one, the emergency department, and two, in the ICU. And the NIH has focused, as has our group and a couple other groups, on this idea that maybe we could deliver treatments to patients earlier in the course of their lung injury, even patients in the emergency department before they get intubated when they have uh, lung injury with bilateral infiltrates and hypoxemia. So the question you ask is about the biology. You know, what's the interconnection between the pathogenesis and the resolution? And this was, interestingly, part of the focus of uh, Aspen Lung Injury Conference this year a couple weeks ago. And I um broadly speaking, the process of lung injury and repair can be uh, simplified conceptually as like a uh, wound that any of us might sustain, for example, um, a laceration or a traumatic injury to our leg or arm, in which there's initial appropriate inflammatory response, particularly if there's uh, infection, and all the ha- classic hallmarks of acute inflammation with neutrophils and exudation of serum protein, some of which are going to provide with complement host defense. And so it doesn't impair, of course, the respiratory system when that occurs in the leg or the arm, unless the patient gets septic from it. And a lot of the cells that enter the compartment at that point are also beginning to play a role in the resolution. There's all this uh, exciting new data from Dr. Sirhan at the Brigham Hospital and Dr. Bruce Levy and others, that the, many of the cells can begin to program the repair process rapidly with anti-inflammatory lipids, such as lipoxin A4 or resolvent. In fact, we have new, as yet unpublished data, that mesenchymal stem cells release a lot of lipoxin A4 at the time they come home to the injured site. So maybe, you know, that process of repair that reduces inflammation and enhances repair may begin very early. So, yes, they're probably linked, but the various signals that determine how the resolution is initiated and sustained, uh, that area needs more work.
1: Clearly, these are difficult questions that are going to require research ongoing for, for decades. I just want to shift gears and ask about the future of lung injury and and repair research. What advice can you give to junior investigators in this funding climate?
0: Well, that's a challenge. I think that young investigators need to be a little uh, colorblind, (laughs) you know, like someone who has a red-green colorblindness and just pay no attention, for the most part, to these uh, limitations in NIH funding. I think that the field needs talented young investigators so much Ironically, because of some of the challenges, the number of young physician scientists willing to commit to an academic career has really uh, reduced most programs, including the major academic programs. So if an individual is really motivated and truly loves the process of learning and discovery, I think that he or she should not be deterred by uh, the challenges in funding. Of course, you can't be naive about it, but I think if he or she is really committed The likelihood is they can be successful if they work hard at finding a very good mentor and uh, work on, uh, you know, focused projects to develop their scientific skills, whether it's laboratory-based or human-based. And, you know, there's a long history of NIH support being cyclical, and so I think young investigators should not be deterred. And, you know, here's another interesting (laughs) related point, think about ARDS. So, imagine where we were with ARDS in the early to mid-90s. The syndrome was very severe, mortality was 40%, even in clinical trials, where a lot of patients are excluded because of underlying tumors, cancer, liver disease, and so on. And then we had one of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of American medicine, probably the greatest breakthrough in the history of critical care medicine when uh, the NHLBI Arts Network trial that we did with low tidal volume, it turned out to uh, markedly decrease mortality. And, and the history here goes back to 1974 when a um, study published from here at UCSF and the CBRI showed that experimentally, higher tidal volumes and a lung stretch were injuring the lung. And then this was picked up later by other laboratory investigators. And so it's you know, gradually got translated to clinical trials. So the message here is that if you keep the focus on something physiologically and biologically important, I think that you cannot underestimate what might be discovered that could be really important. So the young investigators should keep up the enthusiasm and just look at the low of volume trial and lung protective ventilation and how it's transformed that field. It's dropped mortality in ARDS probably by 30 to 40 percent. It's not quite like penicillin, but it's been (laughs) quite remarkable. And it's only, uh, only, only matched by the tremendous benefit of surfactant replacement therapy on the neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. You can't discover something overnight, but you just have to work at it. And so I don't want the young uh, scientist investigators to be discouraged.
1: What skills should young scientists work to obtain for a career in pulmonary investigation?
0: Well, I think if they want to do lab-based experimental research initially, they mainly can learn all the methods they need in an excellent laboratory. There will be a few things they need to pick up, you know, maybe uh, imaging methods or microscopy methods that might be supplemental to what they do in the laboratory, but the standard in vitro and in vivo models that they would work with in the lab, if it's a good, well-funded, and experienced lab, they're going to learn it all right there. They don't need to take a year of courses on how to do western blots and different molecular methods. You learn it right in the lab, like apprenticeship, almost like clinical medicine. However, for human-based research, this is different. Physician scientists here need to take some very formal training at least a year, and really get good at uh, not just biostatistics, but actually learning how to manage databases and how to analyze them. And uh, this means learning how to do STATA and having a small project uh, that, in which they work with this. Once they achieve this, they'll be very impressed how much they can accomplish with all these skills. But human-based research requires some formal training at the same time uh, that they're doing uh, a clinical project. Uh, The payoff is very much there, though, within a couple years. Some programs recommend you get a master's in clinical uh, translational work. That's not so important whether you get the degree, but a year or two of courses is important.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Are there closing comments or thoughts that you have on any of the topics we've covered?
0: Well, it's very nice. I think you've led this so well, Ben, with the uh, questions. I think that for pulmonary critical care physicians or any critical care physician, it's important as they look at the problem clinically to try to understand what do we know and not know about the problem and to understand the limits of our knowledge. Uh, Just one additional point, we talked about alveolar edema fluid clearance and the mechanisms. Well, I should emphasize that the lung protective ventilation strategy enhances edema fluid clearance. We have experimental data and excellent uh, clinical data suggesting the same point. In other words, when we learned that the lungs were being additionally injured by the high pressures and high tidal volume, what we then found is that the resolution of alveolar edema was accelerated with the lung protective strategy. And the lung protective strategy has multiple mechanisms of benefit, somewhat akin, if you will, to the ideas about cell-based therapy. And maybe that's one of the reasons why lung-protective ventilation was so beneficial, because it protected the epithelium, the endothelium, probably reduced inflammation, and uh, even had benefits outside the lung. So I think investigators should bear that in mind when thinking about new approaches and therapies.